following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit for participation in this activity or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Support for this activity is provided by independent educational grants from Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Exact Sciences Corporation, Merck, Pfizer, Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Cookson at the University of Oklahoma, and I'm the chairman and professor there, and I work at the Stevenson Cancer Center. Welcome to the Changing Landscape of Advanced Prostate Cancer Treatment, a Guidelines and Case-Based Discussion. In this session, we're going to discuss the role of genetic testing in advanced M1 castration-resistant prostate cancer, and we will cover immunotherapy or PARP inhibitors in this case study, which is labeled in our series number five. I'm honored tonight to have with us Dr. Lenny Gamella, who is the Chair of Urology at the Sidney Kimmel Cancer Center, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, where he also serves as a Senior Director for Clinical Affairs for the Cancer Center. He's also served as the past president of the SGO and has had a longstanding interest in basic science and translational and clinical research in urologic oncology with a main focus on prostate cancer. In 2017, and then again in 2019, he co-chaired the Philadelphia International Prostate Cancer Consensus Meeting that addressed the rapidly evolving area of genetic testing in prostate cancer. So I can't think of anybody more qualified to bring on for this session. Lenny, would you please introduce yourself and let's start the case. Great. Well, uh, thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. And um the SUO partnership and the AUA partnership in bringing these uh, advanced prostate cancer courses have been uh, spectacular, and it is a great honor uh, to participate uh, with this program. So what I'd like to do first is um, have a little bit of discussion of the, uh, the case history. Mike, is that okay if I can go ahead and present that? Yeah, let's introduce it. So um, we have for the case study this evening, a 62-year-old gentleman who developed urinary frequency, never had a PSA before, and his first time out of the gate PSA was 55, and it was repeated and confirmed to be markedly elevated. There was no family history of prostate cancer, but he did have a mother and an aunt who both died from breast cancer. His prostate was biopsied, and he, he had extensive uh, Gleason seven, four plus three adenocarcinoma. Bone scan was done and there were over 20 asymptomatic uh, lesions that were detected. CAT scan, he had primary, primarily pelvic lymphadenopathy. And because of the extensive number of uh, lesions on his bone scan, uh, he was treated initially with androgen deprivation therapy and went ahead and received uh, six cycles of docetaxel. Well, Lenny, let's talk about that for a minute. You know, when a patient's diagnosed with an initial metastatic disease and he's presumed to have not been treated, so castrate sensitive is, is the expectation. Let's talk about what are the options. I know you mentioned a couple of them there. So, yeah, so uh, this is really uh, something that is uh, uh, really uh, evolving very rapidly. You know, our traditional approach to uh, widely metastatic, newly diagnosed, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer had been traditionally just androgen deprivation. Um, but we've had a series of very important randomized clinical trials that have come forward uh, over the last few years that really tell us now with, with a initial diagnosis of castration-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer, we now have compelling evidence that androgen deprivation plus something is really uh, is really a benefit to most uh, patients. And uh, what that something is now, we have several new uh, several trials that suggest that docetaxel may be beneficial, apalutamide may be beneficial, and enzalutamide may be beneficial uh, 
So we have chemotherapy with docetaxel, abiraterone, and apalutamide and enzalutamide that really today are shown to improve overall survival and metastatic history-sensitive uh, prostate cancer. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the genetics here because, you know, when, when we were earlier in training, if you asked about a family history of prostate cancer, you felt like you were doing your job. And you mentioned other cancer-related syndromes in this particular patient's past medical history. So let's talk about what the urologist should be looking for when he's talking about family history, and then how that dovetails into possible genetic testing, and then how we would test. Yeah, so Mike, that's a great point. Um, you know, this has rapidly evolved in our field over the last five years. Uh, yeah, again, just asking about prostate cancer in a family is no longer adequate. Uh, we now know that there are familial cancer syndromes in men with prostate cancer uh, that can be in the family. Other relatives can have breast cancer, including male breast cancer, by the way, female breast cancer, hereditary uh, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, Lynch syndrome cancers that include some colorectal cancers. So uh, we need to do a much more extensive uh, history than we ever did before. Now, the reality is, as we all know, the majority of prostate cancers are still sporadic, 70, 80%. However, in 15 to 20%, we can identify a, a familial component. And as a subset of that, an actual inherited risk in about 10 to 15% of men where we can actually identify uh, identify mutated genes. So getting a more comprehensive family history today is much more important than ever. So if you're going to obtain that genetic test, um, talk to me about like, should I just get the test? What should I ask for counseling? What What's the implications of a test in a, in a man? And what are the potential cascade effects? Yeah, so uh, we, we have to realize that um, genetic testing uh, is, is not something you do on a cavalier basis because there can be some significant implications, uh, particularly in the family. But uh, genetic testing today is very easy to get, most often by a buccal swab. Uh, you can do it by blood test, but almost everybody uses a cheek type of, uh, cheek type of swab. Um, and in this particular patient, um, he was noted to have a BRCA1 germline mutation, which is interesting because most men with uh, advanced uh, metastatic prostate cancer actually have a BRCA2 germline mutation uh, who have the, the 10 to 15 percent who do have it. Uh, and I'm a big believer in working with genetic counselors because I think this is uh, a lot of information for patients to, uh, to um, uh, assimilate. Uh, at their time of diagnosis. And then asking other family members is something really, I think, that needs a genetic counselor. So this particular patient that we took care of uh, had some brothers who did not decline testing, but had two sisters who were very interested in uh, going ahead and having genetic uh, testing. Yeah. And, and my understanding is that there are some laws that protect patients from certain aspects of discrimination based on their genetic testing, but not all aspects of, of for example, insurance are, are covered. you want to just speak briefly about that? Yeah, Mike, that's a very good point. And I think this is something urologists need to be familiar with, known as the GINA laws that were pat, passed back in uh, 2009. And basically, it's a genetic discrimination laws. Um, if you have uh, identified a mutated gene in your germline and in your family, um, you cannot be denied employment. Um, you cannot be denied health insurance. However, it gets a little tricky because you can be potentially denied life insurance and long-term disability insurance. So got to be a little bit careful about just ordering uh, spontaneously genetic testing without really understanding all of the implications. That's a great point. All right. Well, let, tell me what, catch me up to date on the case now. You've done some genetic testing. The sister's work is in progress. What's happening with our patient and his response to the docetaxel? So we're going to use the, uh, the genetic testing possibly later. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit later about when we actually do recommend uh, specific scenarios for genetic testing. But clearly, any patient today who presents with 
de novo or recurrent metastatic prostate cancer, all of our guidelines say get genetic testing because it may help you with future, for, uh, further treatments. So again, uh, his uh, PSA bottomed out uh, at about 4.3 about a year later, but unfortunately a year and a half later, his PSA bounced back up to 37. So over the next couple of years, he received the usual uh, uh, sequential treatments, was treated with uh, abiraterone, enzalutamide, um, got uh, cabezataxel, um, and again, just, uh, just sort of hung in there. Uh, and um, he then eventually, four years later, uh, developed a metastatic uh, progressive castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer. So this is a guy who uh, went over a four to five year period, failed multiple courses of chemotherapy and androgen biosynthesis pathway inhibitors. Uh, sadly, uh, during this time, he developed massive inguinal adenopathy uh, with a PSA of greater than 65 and a clearly castrate level of testosterone. Um, and at that point, a decision was made to do somatic tumor testing of this massively evolved groin lymph node. Let's back up for a minute there, because, you know, many in our audience may not be uh, yet ordering a lot of genetic testing in their practice. And I, I think we've got a pretty good understanding of a, a, an upfront germline test. That sounds like a, a swab in the mouth or perhaps a blood test. And you send that off and that is the genetic testing, that's, that's the DNA that you inherited, right? Correct. The genetic, the genetic test, it's called germline testing. It's things that you in potentially both normal and abnormally mutated genes that you might inherit from your mother or your father. So you just said you were going to get some additional um, genetic testing, and you called that somatic testing. Let's explain uh, what you're doing there, how you do it, and what you're expecting to find in that scenario. So this is a, a very common uh, approach in medical oncology, um, looking for actionable genes. Uh, it's, being done, it's been done for many, many years in uh, medical oncology circles, and is now really starting to enter urology and urologic oncology. When we talk about somatic tumor testing, what we are talking about now, doing genetic analysis of specific genes that may be located in the tumor or in the metastasis. Very often, um, you will not find any inherited uh, abnormalities in patients with advanced cancer, but you may find certain genetic alterations in the tumor. The term I like to use, the, the tumor is sort of like the Wild West. Anything can happen in that tumor you can develop all sorts of very strange genetic mutations as the cancer progresses. So somatic tumor testing looks at genes in the tumor that may or may not be inherited, whereas when you do germline testing, you're really looking at predisposition to develop cancers. And if I can make one other point, Mike, that I always like to make, when we talk about these mutated genes, such as BRCA1, BRCA2, they do not cause cancer. We still do not know what causes prostate cancer. However, we do know that when these genes are mutated in the germline and they're inherited in a mutated form from your mother or your father, when a man develops prostate cancer, it's more likely to be an aggressive, metastatic, and life-threatening cancer. That's why it's very important to identify them. But the somatic testing is going to give us guidance when it comes to perhaps third or fourth-line treatment of this man who has progressive disease. So that's really helpful. It sounds like these somatic changes that are in the tumors, they can continue to change as the cancer and the patient are subjected to additional therapies. So there's opportunities there to look for types of mutation. I guess if you describe the tumor microenvironment as a wild, wild west, then let's introduce the possibility of treatments linked to that testing as perhaps putting them in the okay corral. So let's talk a little bit about what options these tests might open up for a patient like this. So this is certainly uh, a very exciting direction we're going in in prostate cancer. You know, we've had eight or nine um, 
new uh, therapies for advanced prostate cancer brought forward over the last 10 years. But one of the very exciting areas uh, is in the area of precision medicine, where you identify very specific genetic or genomic abnormalities uh, in the tumor or in the germline. And then you can go ahead and put uh, targetable agents that are more most likely to help that patient and give them a response. So for example, in this particular patient, we did a needle biopsy of the groin node, and it was positive for a BRCA1 germline mutation. And what is known as MHH, MSH high or microsatellite uh, instability high on what was known as a foundation one assay. Now this assay looks at a panel of 300 different mutated genes, but if we can identify certain characteristics such as a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 abnormality, these patients who have failed previous therapy are then eligible for other third and fourth line treatments. And in this particular case, uh, this patient was eligible for one of the PARP inhibitors. The PARP inhibitors, um, Olaparib and Rucaparib, are used based on genetic and genomic testing when patients have failed other standard therapies and continue to have progressive cancer. So this man was started on a drug known as Olaparib, one of the PARP inhibitors. These PARP inhibitors were just approved in May of 2020, opening up a whole new area of therapeutics for women with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who fail therapy, but also it relies on identifying specific genetic alterations. So what you're telling me is, you know, he, he probably would have qualified on germline testing that he had initially for the PARP inhibitor. And if he had been negative on his germline testing, it's still possible that you could have found that type of a, of a defect in the tumor. So just doing germline testing up front is, is a, a necessary step, but it's not the only step. And then you can continue to sample for, for changes in the tumor itself. Absolutely correct. Men with advanced cancer that has failed other therapies and are looking at third or fourth line, we actually know that it's reasonable to combine both germline and somatic testing. Uh, they're very often additive. Sometimes they'll both show a germline abnormality. Sometimes you will see a germline abnormality that was inherited but not present in the tumor and vice versa. So actually, when you do have these advanced cases of cancer, particularly those that are refractory and you're entering third and fourth line treatment, uh, having both the germline as well as the somatic testing at your disposal gives you more potential options to help men with this advanced stage of prostate cancer. And in this particular patient, you mentioned that he also had this MSH high test, and that opened up the opportunity for a pembrolizumab type of therapy, which is, I think, tumor agnostic. It doesn't matter that he had prostate cancer. He's got that change. He would qualify for that type of treatment. Is that correct? That's absolutely, that's absolutely correct. Okay. Well, let's step back for a minute because we're, we're, we've kind of gotten a lot of mileage out of this particular case, but... Back to the genetic testing, when to test. Let's talk a little bit about that. It looks clear to me that we test a man who has newly diagnosed metastatic disease. And as you mentioned, what was it, about 10% or so may have uh, a mutation there on their, on their DNA damage repair genes? Yeah, so it's about, historically, it's about 10 to 15%. But what I do think is happening is the more uh, the more and more patients that we do um, that we do testing on, uh, the more we are likely to find uh, these uh, various uh, genetic uh, the genetic alterations. You know, there's a again we're just really we're really right now um, at the uh, at the earliest stages of, uh, of of this world of genetics and prostate cancer. And again, there's many other uh, genes and many other um, uh, potential strategies out there that rely on uh, precision medicine to identify new targets for, uh, for prostate cancer. So besides the newly diagnosed metastatic patient or perhaps the castration resistant patient who comes in and hasn't been tested, who else should be offered a germline test maybe earlier in their disease process? Yeah, so we're, with the direction that we're going in, really, um, germline testing of prostate cancer uh, 
is absolutely always indicated for patients with uh, very high risk disease or regionally advanced disease, and certainly all patients uh, with metastatic disease. Um, we're, we're starting to learn a little bit more that uh, even if a patient has low risk prostate cancer, but if they have a suggestive family history, they should undergo testing. So for example, this gentleman, um, you know, let's say he didn't have as advanced disease, but he had a couple of relatives in his family uh, who had potentially inherited tumors like breast, ovarian, pancreatic, and, and such, should probably have a genetic testing. But clearly, um, one of the other areas that NCCN guidelines, uh, any patient with intraductal or cribriform prostate cancer strongly suggested that they uh, undergo genetic testing. But clearly, it should be a, a kind of a no-brainer today that if you have very high-risk cancer or metastatic cancer, you really essentially, and I would underscore, must have, uh, must have genetic uh, testing uh, as, in, uh, as in this gentleman. That's great. So lots of opportunities for us to consider when to order that germline test in these patients, coupled with the counseling. We've already discussed, you know, the implications for testing family members, sometimes referred to as cascade testing, but certainly needs to be included in the counseling so that if the test does come back positive, then it's not a surprise and people are prepared for that. Yeah, again, this word, you use a word, Mike, that is very common in the lingo of genetic counselors, and that is this cascade testing. And, and really, you know, if the patient is, I run into this all the time, as you probably do in your clinic, um, if a patient uh, undergoes genetic testing and they do not have an identifiable mutated gene that is associated with prostate cancer, it's probably not worth testing the rest of the family. Uh, but this is, again, where a, a family, a, a genetic counselor can come in and really look at the details of the family history and make that decision. Okay. I wanted to ask you about the liquid ability or a blood test for some of the uh, somatic changes. Is that becoming a reality? So I think um, uh, to, to uh, just mention, I'm very interested in this area because uh, way back when in uh, 1992, uh, we described the first genetic RT-PCR test for circulating tumor cells at Jefferson um, for, uh, for prostate cancer. And actually we tried to work with other centers, but we could never get it to work. I think we were kind of ahead of our time uh, in doing that way back in 1992. But I think what we might've been actually picking up might have been cell-free DNA. And this is something now which is actually entering the mainstream uh, that as uh, next generation sequencing and our molecular techniques have greatly improved, we now can do a blood test and not only identify circulating tumor cells, but actually identify what is known as cell-free DNA. Why is that important? Because the tumor cells very often will be shedding not only tumor cells, but cell-free DNA into the bloodstream. And certainly to do a blood test is much more kind on the patient and getting a cell-free DNA analysis than it is to do a uh, invasive needle biopsy of let's say a metastatic liver lesion or a metastatic lymph node. So cell-free DNA testing is really now starting to enter the mainstream. Uh, it's not widely done outside of, uh, of academic centers right now, but clearly uh, it is now available through some commercial laboratories uh, such as Foundation and Caris. So I think we're going to start to see more and more of this as time goes on. It's very helpful for clinical trials uh, to identify actionable genes. Uh, and again, using things such as PARP inhibitors or even pembrolizumab, which is agnostic to uh, uh, the tumor type, pembrolizumab is something that if you do the genetic testing uh, on or somatic testing or cell-free DNA, and they have a high tumor mutational burden or they have MSH high, they are also eligible for immunotherapy with pembrolizumab uh, in the treatment of prostate cancer. Although remember, it's not specific for prostate cancer, it's for any solid tumor that has the MSH high or the high tumor mutational burden detected on somatic testing. You mentioned the two FDA approved agents currently, as we sit here, October of 2021, um, rucaparib and alaparib. The PARP inhibitors that are used, that are based on these genetic tests, 
Let's talk a little bit about some of the common toxicities. Yeah, so I think this is something uh, that medical oncologists are very familiar with. The reason for that is PARP inhibitors have been used um, in uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and pancreatic cancer. So they're relatively new to the field of prostate cancer. So I think that medical oncologists uh, who've been dealing with these other tumor types are very familiar with how to manage the PARP inhibitors and their toxicity that can be seen with rucaparib or olaparib. Uh, but the common problems that you do run into with these agents, the PARP inhibitors, are GI toxicity. There can be nausea and vomiting. Um, and again, you have to monitor liver function tests such as ALT and AST, particularly during their early treatment with the PARP inhibitors. The other one that's probably a little bit more scary are hematologic toxicities. Um, you can really see significant neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and anemia. And more concerning is myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia, which it has occurred. Fortunately, it's very rare, and this appears to be more common in patients who are on PARP inhibitors who were previously treated with some type of platinum-based chemotherapy. But nonetheless, this is something that really requires very stringent monitoring. And the other thing is you can see an increase in creatinine uh, using some of these medications. How are most of these um, toxicities managed initially? Um, so when you when you look at how the drugs are actually formulated, um, you can do a fairly easy dose reduction, and most PARP inhibitor toxicities are managed with dose reductions. And sometimes you can bring the dose down uh, instead of let's say 300 milligrams twice a day, go down to 150 milligrams twice a day, uh, and then when the hematologic or uh, liver function uh, tests correct themselves, go back up again. Thank you. Well, I think we're going to have to sort of wrap it up here as we're winding down with our time. But um, I think that Dr. Camella, you've very elegantly highlighted sort of a revolution in the management of men with prostate cancer in general, with the role of genetic testing, how those genetic tests can then be used to at least at this point, use them in, in treatment for the second and third line therapies in men with failed castration resistance. Uh, there's certainly an evolving role of genetic and somatic testing. And if urologists, even if they're not prescribing them, they need to be aware of these things because these open up opportunities even when they have failed all of our conventional therapies. Would you have any other final thoughts as we close this down, Dr. Camilla? Uh, I just really think that uh, we're entering a, a new phase, uh, as you pointed out. Uh, we've seen so many new agents come out, uh, and we're now getting more in the area of uh, precision medicine. And I really think it's incumbent upon urologists to really start to understand uh, genetic genomic testing, somatic testing, uh, if they're going to be involved with treating patients with uh, all stages of prostate cancer because we didn't talk too much about it, but genetic testing may impact things such as screening or active surveillance as well. But our focus uh, in this podcast is really for patients with advanced disease, but urologists really all need to uh, uh, sort of get up to speed on what's going on in this very exciting and dynamic world of genetic and genomic testing. Well, I wanna thank our audience and I certainly wanna thank our guest, Dr. Gamella for this very informative session. For more information, please visit auanet.org slash university. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Cookson. Hello and uh, welcome everybody. My name is Dr. David Gerard and I'd like to welcome you to the evolving landscape of advanced prostate cancer treatment for guidelines and case-based discussion. Uh, this is case number uh, case study number six and it is uh, metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer post docetaxel chemotherapy in end of life care. Uh, my name uh, is Dr. David Gerard. I'm the Vice Chair of Urology at the University of Wisconsin. I'm an Associate Director in the Carbone Cancer Center. Uh, I have clinical research interests in advanced prostate cancer. I'm a member of the 
guidelines panels uh, for both the NCCN and the American Urological Association. And what we're going to plan to do here today is highlight uh, post-chemotherapy uh, patient management. Uh, there are 12 new treatments and counting uh, for advanced prostate cancer patients. We'll talk about sequencing options, several new developments with regard to biomarkers and focusing this care. And I'm joined today uh, by uh, Dr. Uh, Josh Lang. He's a physician scientist uh, who specializes in the care of men with advanced prostate cancer. Uh, he has a laboratory focused on the development of liquid biopsies for translational research and clinical trials. Uh, he's involved in multiple phase one, phase two therapeutic trials in oncology. And he's now serving as the vice chair of biomedical research in the Department of Medicine. Uh, so he uh, represents, uh, uh, again, the University of Wisconsin uh, on the NCCN Prostate Cancer Guidelines Committee, is a co-director as well in uh, the Physician Scientist Training Program and has a number of other things that he's involved in. So Dr. Lang, welcome. Good afternoon, David. So we'll uh, first present a case, and this is a 73-year-old male who was first diagnosed 11 years ago uh, with a PSA of uh, 9, uh, had a prostatectomy for an intermediate-grade adenocarcinoma, and he developed a biochemical recurrence three years later. I was treated with salvage radiation therapy. Uh, however, his uh, PSA began rising a year after that, and he developed a pelvic lymph node uh, enlargement. Uh, he responded for a number of years to androgen deprivation therapy, uh, however, developed progressive bone metastases, uh, was placed on abiraterone, and now presents to your clinic uh, with symptomatic bone metastases. So this is really somebody who's been through a number of treatments already. Uh, he then, um, when he saw you, received six cycles of docetaxel, uh, and he now has PSA progression and, again, recurrent symptoms of bo bone pain. So this is a heavily pretreated patient. Uh, what are some of the treatment, treatment options that are open uh, for this patient at the present time? Well, the good news is that we do have many different treatment options available to us, and it's really critical that we understand the biology of this gentleman's disease to help us decide which of these therapies will be the best next treatment but also so we can strategize for what's the treatment that we should consider after that or after that. So among the therapies that we have that are currently FDA approved, we do have cabazitaxel, so another uh, chemotherapeutic option. Enzalutamide is another hormone-based or androgen receptor inhibitor. Radium-223, which is a radiopharmaceutical that only treats bone metastases, also FDA approved. And then for some of my patients who have more aggressive cancers that are causing even more symptoms, we look at platinum doublet or combination chemotherapies. And then as always, we have clinical trials as well as we're trying to develop new interventions to help these gentlemen. So uh, again, a heavily pretreated patient has been treated with abiraterone, docetaxel chemotherapy. What kind of cancer does our patient have and, and how do we diagnose this? I think that's one of the most important questions that we ask for our patients with this stage of disease. There was a recent publication where they performed biopsies for patients in this situation, exact situation, to ask, you know, is this the original adenocarcinoma that we started with, or has there been some other kind of a change? And in this particular trial, they found that approximately 19% of patients, their cancer had changed to something that we call a neuroendocrine prostate cancer. And one of the reasons that's so important is those are cancers that typically do not respond for very long periods of time to these hormone-based therapies. You know, it's certainly something I'm worried about for our patient today because his cancer became resistant to abiraterone in only six months. So I'm worried that his cancer might have transitioned or changed into something that's more aggressive. And that's going to be important in the future as we think about, well, what other genetic tests and what other things can we do to identify what cancer this patient is fighting? So let's just shift gears here for a moment and talk about how do you decide uh, what to, uh, what to, which treatment to use first? And sort of specifically, what, what do you think about biopsy biomarkers uh, in this kind of setting? Great question. Well, there's kind of two big pieces of evidence that I think about. 
Um, the first was a clinical trial, um, clinical trial known as CARD that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine and asked for patients who had their cancer had progressed on a hormone therapy, what was the next best treatment? And was that going straight to another hormone therapy? So for example, going from abiraterone that our patient had to enzalutamide, or if someone had enzalutamide going to abiraterone versus going from that hormone first hormone-based therapy to cabazitaxel chemotherapy. And again, it was really based around that idea that some cancers can change, that it can be new genetic mutations or some other alteration and chemotherapy is gonna have a better chance at leading to a disease response. And that's exactly what they found in the CARD trial was that there was a significant improvement in terms of the number of patients who had a disease response, improvement in PSA, improvement in pain scores and other clinical factors. And they lived longer as well when they went to cabazitaxel chemotherapy in that situation. Now there were still some patients that benefited from a second line androgen receptor inhibitor except it was a much smaller number of patients. So those are the really important clinical trial factors that lead us to thinking about chemotherapy as the next best option for our patient. So to follow up on that, um, you're talking with your patient now uh, about that trial. So cabazitaxel is one option. Uh, he's obviously been pre-treated with uh, abiraterone and also got uh, docetaxel. Uh, what other information can you use to help counsel him? Well, it's definitely a situation where I talk about those other therapies that we mentioned earlier, enzalutamide, apalutamide, or even darolutamide, which are androreceptor um, antagonists. Um, but then it's really important to say, well, who are the patients that would benefit from that type of a therapy? If there's bone-only metastases, we'll talk about radium-223 as another potential option. Uh, remembering that this patient had enlarged lymph nodes back when he was started on ADT initially. So updated radiographic imaging will be really important as well. Again, identifying, you know, what are those uh, other clinical pathologic features to help figure out the best treatment for this gentleman? And obviously if he had a visceral metastases, we'd certainly want to avoid radium 223 and that's exactly. re-imaging in this situation. So the, um, when you think about cabazitaxel, uh, how is that related to docetaxel and what are some of the uh, complications or side effects you can run into with this, with this medicine? So really important questions, especially because with cabazitaxel in the original clinical trial, we found that there was a very high frequency of neutropenic events and neutropenic fever, as well as treatment related death. So it really highlighted the potential for this therapy to cause severe neutropenias. Um, now, that was when it was dosed at 25 milligrams per meter squared. There was a second trial that found that going down on that dose level to 20 milligrams per meter squared was better tolerated and didn't have as many side effects. Now, that being said, any patient being treated with cabazitaxel should receive GCSF prophylaxis to help prevent neutropenia and neutropenic fever. Again, one of the biggest complications from this therapy. Now, there are some other side effects we think about. Um, Chemotherapy-induced nausea with some of our therapies is actually very rare these days. It's really important that we're aggressive about managing and treating the side effects or toxicities our patients experience. Better quality of life, patients feel better, and they're able to receive more cycles of treatment when we're aggressive about supportive care. Um, other things that I think about with cabazitaxel, pretty uncommon in terms of the potential for neuropathy. Um, there are a few other less common side effects, but again, very important to talk about with our patients, so that way we can adjust the dose. Again, with that idea that quality of life is always our priority, even though, again, we're giving a treatment that our goal is to improve survival. So in the past, we'd often hear about following uh, with another course of docetaxel. Uh, so you're, what you're saying now is cabazitaxel is really a better option in this situation. Especially now with randomized clinical trial evidence with the CARD trial, that's the next best therapy at this time. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't other therapies for us to look at, and that's also where biomarkers can be helpful in making that decision as well. Good. Yeah, so let's move on to, to biomarker evaluation. And uh, our patient uh, obviously has metastases, lymphadenopathy, bone metastases. How do you go about uh, uh, getting more information with regard to, to uh, how we should treat this patient? Yeah, great question. Well, this is really where, and you know, as we found from other diseases, that the more information we have, the better recommendation we're able to make for our patient. 
So this is where we strongly recommend that when we're when patients progress on either their first line um, androgen receptor inhibitors such as enzalutamide or abiraterone, that that's a good time to get a solid tumor biopsy, whether that's bone, lymph node, or other sites of disease. Now, soft tissue biopsies, we often get better quality DNA for genetic sequencing, though there have been a number of advances in terms of how we process bone biopsies. So here at the University of Wisconsin, now we have a success rate of 90 to 95% with our bone biopsies for genetic testing. Now, what that allows us to do is ask, what kind of genetic changes have happened? And is this something where we see mutations in that androgen receptor gene? Again, that's the target of of enzalutamide and amiraterone. Um, if we see mutations or amplifications, that really tells us that going back towards that class of therapies is unlikely to be helpful for our patient. There are some other genetic mutations that we can find as well that might suggest this is more of that neuroendocrine prostate cancer. Again, one that we would think about either cabazitaxel chemotherapy or even combination chemotherapies. Now, some other things that are really important to consider at this time as well of what if we see genetic changes in genes like the BRCA2 gene? You know, that's a gene that's very important and also predicts uh, sensitivity to a new class of drugs called PARP inhibitors. So I'm talking about Olaparib and Rucaparib. We see those genetic mutations in the BRCA2 and related genes in about 15 to 20% of patients. And if we do see those uh, mutations, that's an entirely different class of treatments that might be helpful for our patient. Now, again, as we start doing more and more of this genetic testing, we're starting to find other changes as well that might lead us down one path or another. However, if you don't get the biopsy and the genetic testing, you will never know. So I'm really excited about where we're going in the future in terms of what these kinds of um, genetic tests can provide. Now, I think that's one of the other aspects too of, you know, we look at genetics and then we also look at some of the proteins as well. And that's also important for asking about this neuroendocrine prostate cancer. Again, a disease that can be more resistant to the hormone therapies we often use in prostate cancer. So what the, specifically, if you are uh, considering a biopsy uh, and perhaps you have limitations with regard to uh, genetic testing, that's state of the art and clearly most centers have this, but you mentioned uh, looking at some of the other neuroendocrine or atypical prostate cancer markers. What kinds of things would we have our pathologists stain for? So we look for proteins such as synaptophysin or chromogranin A. One of the other things that we ask for, and this can both be protein, but also can be genetic, is looking for microsatellite instability. So that's something that we look at. And we again, we can see that on genetic testing as well, um, or the routine genetic tests. And what that helps us to do is ask, is this someone who might benefit from immunotherapies? Now, response rates in prostate cancer to immunotherapies are very low, um, generally speaking, less than 5%. But we have found that some specific genetic mutations, high tumor mutation burden, that can also be a signature we find on the biopsy that could indicate our patient might benefit from pembrolizumab. Again, very uncommon, but we don't know if we don't look. It's just remarkable the number of options we have for patients now. And, you know, again, biomarker driven. So the patient's more likely to benefit from uh, that therapy. Uh, just incredible, the, the arsenal that we now have. So uh, you mentioned a little bit, and I know you know a lot about um the role of liquid biopsy. And clearly there's a lot of excitement. There are a lot of companies working in this area. Maybe you could update us a little bit on uh, some of your work and, and what's going on in this area. Great question. Well, there's, it really comes back to that idea that for some patients, when we do biopsies, we don't get enough tumor from that biopsy to get to su perform successful genetic testing. Now, that also is an invasive procedure and you know, can be more challenging for various reasons to get that tumor biopsy. So one of these ideas is, well, what about blood? We know that when tumors spread to different parts of the body, when they metastasize, oftentimes they travel, uh, those tumor cells travel actually in blood. And we can also find even DNA, for example, that as cancer cells are growing or dying, they shed DNA into circulation. Now that creates a great opportunity to be able to track and monitor the disease. Um, the challenges though, is that the rarity of those, of that DNA molecule in circulation, um, it can be exceptionally low. 
And especially when patients are responding to therapy or they have a small volume of disease that we see on scans, the likelihood of performing successful genetic testing from a blood sample can be very low. And one of the other things that we found recently is that even our normal white blood cells, just as we get older, we can get some small genetic mutations in those white blood cells, not ones that cause leukemia or anything like that, but it could be mistaken for a genetic mutation for it in a tumor. So that's where there's a number of qualifications with these kinds of blood-based tests. There's a few that have been FDA approved, especially looking for the BRCA1, 2, or related genetic mutations. So those are ones that I consider for my patients. If we've tried a couple times and we're still not able to get enough DNA from a tumor biopsy for that kind of testing. There is some data suggesting that those liquid biopsies may not be as good as getting a tumor biopsy. Again, it's about getting enough tumor DNA to sequence. And that's why it's important to only get those blood tests when we see things getting worse on the scans. If we get those blood tests when patients are benefiting from therapy, the likelihood that we're going to find any tumor DNA in circulation is extremely low, extremely unlikely. And that's just not going to be useful for making any treatment decisions. Great. So perhaps you could speak a little bit about PSA as a biomarker for this kind of advanced prostate cancer. And, you know, if you have a, our patient was presenting um, with increasing symptomatic metast pain from presumed metastases, yet his PSA wasn't that high. What, what kinds of things, uh, how does that, how do you think about it as an individual who deals with these kinds of advanced prostate cancer patients all the time? It's a great question. It's something that my patients ask me all the time as well, especially because they're used to PSA because that's what often led to their initial diagnosis of the cancer. And if they've had surgery or radiation, that's the test that they're watching to say, did my cancer come back? However, when patients develop these more advanced stages of prostate cancer where it's spread to different parts of the body, um, PSA, the utility isn't that, uh, it's just not that useful in part because we've seen that PSA on itself does not correlate with how long men live. Um, and in terms of the duration of a response to a therapy also, the correlation isn't very good. So that's where I don't use PSA to guide the recommendations or the interventions for my patients. Um, now it'll certainly worry, especially when we have this discordance, for example, somebody where we see a lot of cancer or a high burden of disease on scans, but a low PSA. You know, those are some things that raise my suspicion that this is a transition to that neuroendocrine prostate cancer. But again, we can only make that uh, diagnosis with a biopsy. So really trust your clinical gestalt is sort of this is really what I tell my trainees. If there's something that doesn't seem right, get more information. Great. So let's talk about uh, something that's been in the press a lot recently. And that was uh, some data coming out on PSMA lutetium uh, as a promising treatment. Uh, perhaps you could talk a little bit about these trials, what exactly this treatment is, and how you might foresee using it in the future. Yeah, great question. So um, along those lines, we talked about radium-223 as a way to give radiation essentially through an IV that can target bone metastases. Well, PSMA lutetium is a similar concept, but what that agent is targeting is a protein called PSMA, or prostate-specific membrane antigen. Basically, it's a protein that we find on most, not all, but most prostate cancers. And what a company did was attach essentially uh, lutetium, a kind of a radiotherapy uh, in layman's terms that allows us to more directly target that um, therapy to those prostate cancer cells expressing PSMA. Now, importantly, it can go to bone, but it can also go to lymph nodes or other areas of the body um, that would not have been targeted by radium-223. So the VISION trial was a phase, randomized phase three clinical trial for men whose cancer had progressed on at least one round of chemotherapy, such as docetaxel, as well as one androreceptor inhibitor, such as abiraterone or enzalutamide. Men were then randomized to either get the next or the alternate androreceptor inhibitor with or without PSMA lutetium. And what they found was that there were approximately 40% uh, of men who got that androgen receptor inhibitor with PSMA lutetium, we saw a response in their disease, both radiographic as well as on uh, PSA. We could also see an improved radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. So very exciting results. Um, things that we're concerned about, though, is the duration of that response to that therapy was not as long as we had hoped. But there were certainly some patients that derived significant benefit 
um, with upward around 10% of patients having a disease response going out to two years. So a very exciting agent. We're hopeful that this will be approved by the FDA in early 2022 as a new treatment option. Um, and it also creates opportunities in the field. Again, coming back to the biology, what's driving the disease? Um, for example, if this is a neuroendocrine prostate cancer, that's a cancer that may not express or make much of that PSMA protein. And those are patients that would not necessarily benefit from this treatment. Um, so lots to explore biologically with that hope that we're going to be able to find ways to combine PSMA lutetium with other treatments in the future. And some of those trials are ongoing right now. So I'm very hopeful and optimistic for the coming years that we'll have many new options to treat advanced prostate cancer. Very exciting and, and really looking forward to, to uh, offering that option to our patients in a routine fashion. So let's talk a, a little bit here uh, as a final subject about the issue of supportive care. And what are things that you think about uh, that you think are important um, and how you manage these types of patients in your practice? Well, it's something where I always talk to my patients. Our goal is obviously quantity of time. We want more time for our patients, um, but quality of time is just as important. And that's where we have more things that we can do for quality of life. You know, as I mentioned, nausea and vomiting are actually very uncommon in my practice because we have much better medications from a supportive care perspective to either prevent or treat that side effect. Um, pain. We absolutely need to treat cancer-related pain. Uh, a lot of my patients are concerned if we use opiates, could that cause uh, addiction? And we know that when we're treating cancer-associated pain, that there is essentially no risk of addiction. Um, and we know that when we treat pain better, more effectively, our patients are more active. And when people are more active, again, you're exercising, you're moving your muscles, you're moving your body, and that itself feeds forward into better tolerability for all of the systemic therapies we're given. Um, planning and communication. And that's something with my palliative care colleagues. And there are randomized trials in lung cancer, for example, that have also shown better quality of life and even longer time when we're more aggressive about these kinds of supportive care measures. So from my perspective, the more the better and the earlier, the better as well. So let's get palliative care. Let's be aggressive about supportive care for our patients with the expectation that will improve quality and quantity of life important features for patients. Very good. Well, thanks. Uh, well, let's just wrap up here by talking about uh, the outcome of this case. Uh, so again, uh, advanced prostate cancer has failed abiraterone, uh, also failed uh, docetaxel. How was he treated and in, in what occurred uh, next with this patient? So for this gentleman, in fact, we did go on to cabazitaxel chemotherapy with GCF support. Um, he did tolerate treatment quite well, um, no difficulties with neutropenia or neutropenic infections. So uh, overall, well-tolerated, similar to his experience with docetaxel. He did have a good treatment response and ultimately completed six cycles of treatment before taking a treatment break. And that allows us time to think about doing a biopsy and other genetic testing and looking at all of those other therapies that we mentioned earlier today. Great. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Lang, and I'd like to thank the audience for their attention as well. Uh, this is uh, our metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer post-docetaxel chemotherapy and end-of-life uh, uh, podcast. For more information, uh, please visit the auanet.org. And from, uh, I'd like to, again, thank you all and have a good evening.